Okay. Brethren, quickly, let's turn to Romans 12, verse 9. My intention this morning is to finish this verse. It's not long. It's not complex. It's not complicated. The words are simple. The words are straightforward. In fact, you may look at them there in Romans 12, 9. We've dealt with let your love be genuine. Let your love be unhypocritical. That's the first part. I want to deal with the second and the third part. Basically, in our ESV Bibles and our English translations, we find this verse broken up into three very distinct statements. What I want to do is key in on the second two. We spent two weeks on the first statement. Let's go here and read these. Very simple, few words. Listen to them. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Brethren, I don't have much of an introduction this morning. You can see these two statements plainly enough. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Here's the thing. Don't despise the simplicity of these two statements. You can read this. Maybe you're sitting there today. I mean, think about it. Put yourself in my place. You sit down at your desk. You open your Bible, you read those two statements. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now you've got to stand up before the folks and say something to them about it. What are you going to say? I mean, you know, if you guys sat and you guys contemplated these two verses, I don't doubt that you wouldn't have thoughts. I, I, I have six observations, six points. I think... I think what happens is we can read things like this, especially right here in Romans 12. You know how it is? You've got all these statements, right? Bang, 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 bang. They just come at us one at another. If, if you guys have your devotional reading in Romans 12, it's not likely. I can imagine. You read Romans 12 and you go off to work. Did you get all of them? I mean, they just come at us rapid fire. Genuine love. Abhorring what is evil. Holding fast to what is good. Let your love have this affectionate component. It just goes right on down through. Bang, 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 bang. One after another. I mean, one thing about the preaching, this gives us an opportunity to slow down. Rather than just reading it, abhor what is evil. Yes, I see that. That's nice. We go on to the next thing. By the time you're done with that verse, you forgot what's even in there. You're going on. You're being hit by these things rapid fire. So sometimes it does good just to stop. Say, well, these are simple statements. Yes, but they're also the truth. They're, they're God's Word. I mean, let's... Let's just stop, dwell on these things a little bit. Six points. If you're ready, let's dive in. Brethren, my first observation is this. I want you to see just for a second the connection between Romans 12.9 and Romans 12.1. Just, you know, you got your Bibles open, just keep your head stuck right there. Don't move off Romans 12. I may quote a few other verses. You don't have to turn there. Keep your head here. We're going to keep coming back to it. I want you to see it. I want you to focus in on it. Look, guys, I don't know if you're like me. There's a thousand things in life, more than that, that I have questions about. I don't have certainties about. I don't know about. I mean, just trying to leave this church. 
I'm asking myself questions all the time. What should we do about this? When should we start the church down there? What should we do over in Peru? What should, what should be our next step over in Turkey? Well, John, John Seitzman's here now. What, what are we going to do? What's, what's this whole plan looking like as far as India and down there on the Bangladesh border and up in Nepal, upper and lower Assam, maybe over there at the Myanmar border? What does this look like? What are we doing with our folks? What's happening? What's the outreach? What, what there's got, there's problems over here. There's problems over there. What in the world are we supposed to be doing? I mean, you know what? We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. We don't, you may not know who to marry. You may not know what profession to follow. You may have all these questions. You're out there trying to discern God's will. I can tell you this. I can tell you something this morning that is God's will, and I know it of a certainty. I like that. I like when I can go to God's Word and I can look at it and I can say, you know what? I don't know a lot of things, but I know this. Because you know what that does? That gives an anchor to the soul. That gives certainty to life. Me as a Christian, you know what? You live out there in this world and you don't have any basis. You don't have any truth. You don't have anything to put your confidence in. You know what? You, you basically just phone around in this fog out there. But you, as a Christian, there are some things we can just say, you know what? I know this. This is what we find here. Here's the thing. You go back up to verse 1. Living sacrifices. Living sacrifices are what? It's what's being described in Romans 12. Whether it's verse 9 or all the other verses, what he's doing is he's describing to us what a living sacrifice is. Living sacrifice is love. Living sacrifice is love genuinely. Living sacrifice is you go down the road. Well, here's the thing. The living sacrifice is the life of the Christian that is acceptable. We looked at that word before. Acceptable is the word for well-pleasing. Here's the thing. I love to know what is well-pleasing to the Lord. I want to know that. Here's the thing. Christian, lay it down as a rule. God is well-pleased. You want to please God? Is that a concern to you? Is that important in your life that God be well-pleased with you? Well, Paul gives you some instructions for what that well-pleasing life looks like. You know what? You can't see God. You can't see His smile. You can't see His approval. You see it in the Word. It comes at us there. That's where He communicates. As you walk through life, you don't constantly see His face right there, either frowning at you or smiling at you to tell you whether it's right or wrong. He's given us His Word for that. And I've got some concrete certainty here that, you know what? If I abhor evil and if I hold fast to good, God is well pleased with that. That is the life of living sacrifice. Folks, you believe that? I'll tell you this. Think about those two words. God is well pleased with the life of living sacrifice. What does it look like? Abhorring evil. Abhor. You know, that word, here's the thing. Both that word, abhor, and that word, hold fast, they are intensive words. Very very intensive. Abhor means to hate something violently. Let me tell you this. That word hold fast. Do you know that in Paul, the only other ways he uses that term is sexual union. It literally means cemented together. Joined together. It is an emphatic word about clinging to, being joined to, Cleaving to. You have hating utterly. 
despising, on the one hand, that which is evil. On the other hand, clinging, grasping, latching yourself onto this thing. There is an intensity. There is an earnestness. I'll tell you this. Living sacrifices are not some spineless jellyfish thing that goes through life. When God saves a man, God saves a woman, He wants them intense. You have no intensity in your life, you're not living up to either of these statements because both of them are intense. God is well pleased with intensity when it comes to evil and intensity when it comes to good. That's how it is. The Lord is saying, put away your apathy, put away your laziness, put away your dullness, put away your moderation. Listen to me. Think with me. You who don't read your Bible every day, why is that? Have you tried it and found it to be evil? Is it not good? I mean, ask yourself such questions. You see, this is one thing I have certainty in. I can read God's Word. I come forth into life and He tells me, you see good? Wham! Grab it! Hold it tight! You see evil? Abhor it utterly! Okay, ask yourself this. Is reading the Bible good? You say, yes, it's good. Why don't you read it every day? You see, folks, Right there. Right at that point. Let's ask about prayer. Is prayer good? You say, yes, it's good. Well, okay, lay hold on it and don't let it go. If prayer is so good, you know what he's telling us? He's basically saying, lay hold of it the way a man would intimately lay hold of his new bride. You lay hold of it. You be intimate with it. You grab it. You don't let go. You cling to it. You be glued to it. Cement yourself to it. Listen. You find prayer good, why aren't you praying every day? Why aren't you getting along with the Lord every day? You say prayer's good, why aren't you at every prayer meeting? You see, folks, when you begin to, to slouch here, to become lazy here, God's saying, away with it. If something's good, be radical about it. If something's bad, be radical about it. You know, some of you may know, I caught these two tarantulas, like in two days. Joshua saw one, we captured it, and then not... I'm out in the front yard. I see another one run by. So we got these two tarantulas. We, we throw them both into a terrarium. I mean, they went at each other and locked. And you know, I tried to get them apart. I knew they were killing each other. And I'm trying to get them apart. And I realized I was going to literally have to tear their bodies apart to separate them. The bigger one just sucked the life out of the other one. Ate him. All there are is some legs left. But look, that is a picture. That tarantula, I could not peel it off without doing bodily harm to it. I had a stick, I'm trying to wedge it in between. That's what God's saying. Folks, you got something in your life that's good. You identify something to be good. You lay hold on it. Don't let anything tear you off. Don't let anything pry you off. Brethren, this is exactly what the Lord is talking about. This is the kind of hold you have on good. If the Word of God is good, then don't let it go. Cling fast to it. No matter what else may come in your life. And just think about the things you'll swap Bible reading time and prayer time for. Those two things are essential in your Christian walk. And the things we... You're not living up to this verse, folks, if you're not clinging tightly to it. And you're not clinging tightly to it if you're letting other things wedge between there. No way, no how. Rather than something good, put a death grip on it. Don't play around this life that is acceptable, that is well-pleasing to God is a life like this. We need to get serious. Our time's short. Good things lay hold of. Bad things abhor. 
Well, my second point. Second observation I want to make is this. You see the verbs there. Abhor. Hold fast. You know, in our English translations, those two verbs appear to be imperatives, right? You guys know what an imperative is. It's a commandment. It's actually translated that way. It appears to look that way. But actually, in the original, let me tell you what they are. They're both participles. Does that excite anybody? Probably not. A whole lot. But let me tell you a little bit about participles. They're sort of like verbs, and they're sort of like adjectives at the same time. In other words, a participle modifies and explains something else. Well, the question is, what does abhor and hold fast modify? You see, when you have participles, they're not an island to themselves. They're connected. They're modifying something else. Well, folks, what do you got there? You got love before and love after. Let your love be genuine before. You got this affectionate brotherly love afterwards. It's, it's very plain that abhor and hold fast are dealing with love. Brethren, Romans 12.9 could just as easily read this way. This would be true to its intent and to its meaning. Let love be genuine, abhorring what is evil, holding fast to what is good. When you say it like that, you really get a feel for the participial flavor of those two verbs. You also get the feel of this. Abhorring evil, holding fast to what is good, is meant to show us something essential about love. That's the point here. Genuine, unhypocritical love hates what is evil, clings to what is good. That's what Paul's saying. There's a distinct connection between genuine love in the first part of this verse and the evil and the good in the second part. Remember, periods and stuff, they don't, they're, not in the, they're not in the Greek. In the original, this, this all runs right together. It's really packed. These participles are joining it. You've got, a, you've got a connection. Here's the thing. Folks, well, you can do this. If you, if you write in your Bibles, you can circle love and you can draw arrows to both of those verbs, which I do sometimes when I find that I actually have participles and they modify. Folks, did I make that connection just to dazzle you all with my very limited understanding of participles? No. Brethren, do you see what Paul's saying? True unhypocritical love does not and will not just laugh at evil. Listen to me. If you'll let your brother or sister play with evil, you can talk about love. You can be really nice. But you're playing the hypocrite. Bottom line, Paul says to abhor what is evil. That literally this means have a horror of evil. Hate it utterly. Despise it. Loathe it. Be repulsed by it. Be disgusted by it. Genuine love is not a spineless sort of thing where we all run around, we're just sort of nice, we're just sort of tolerant. True love, you need to understand this. True love hates. That's what it says. That's what, it's, that's what He's telling us. True love. Christians must hate 
Love has hate in it. I'll guarantee you this. If you don't hate certain things, you will never know true love. Jude says this, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. Jesus said to the church at Ephesus that He says, well, you know, this is in your favor. You have this. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Christians, if you're ever going to genuinely love, you'll also genuinely hate. Love's not always smooth. It's not always nice. It's not always pretty. It's not always easy. Look, you see some infection, some kind of defiling evil in one who you love. Love demands that you become horrified by that thing. You hate it. You despise it. There's repulsion and disgust. Look, my wife told me one time that she and the children walked into a, in, into a store and they saw a guy there with no lower jaw. And I think he was trying to eat or something with no lower jaw. And she said it was just absolutely repulsive and disgusting. Brethren, that's how we need to be with one another when it comes to evil. There needs to be an abhorrence. You see what I'm saying? Abhor. That is a strong and intense word. What it means, if, if some guy just came in here with no jaw and he's trying to eat something and it's just all over the place and it's nasty and it's disgusting, you look at that and you say, man, we gotta, we gotta do something there. Cover that up. Fix that. I mean, you get a, you get a child running in during the, the lunchtime and they've got a rattlesnake hanging off the back of their leg. What are we gonna do? Tell jokes about it? Wasn't that funny? What we're gonna do is we're gonna, we're gonna abhor that thing. Immediately, everybody's attention is gonna be to tear that thing off. Get that thing out of here. Strip that thing off the child. That is exactly what this kind of love is looking like. Genuine love. You do not have genuine love if your brother, your sister walk in here, they've got the rattlesnake hanging off of them, and you just kind of skirt the issue. Why? Because you're afraid. Because you don't want to confront the thing. Because you're afraid of the consequences. Because it makes you feel uncomfortable. Look, folks, you young people, you got friends pirating music? They claim to be Christians? That's stealing. You guys doing that? That's like a rattlesnake hanging off you. You got friends that don't pay their taxes? You got some sexual impurity? You know what? You just sit there and be nice to them. Your love is unhypocritical. Your love is hypocritical. It's not unhypocritical. You see what this is saying? We've got to abhor it. Do ask yourself that. Do we really abhor it? Or do we see wrong? Do we see sin? Do we see this disgusting thing that's that's in people like that jaw being gone? It's like, oh, that's horrible. But, you know, if I try to mess with this thing, it's going to be awful dirty and messy and I'm likely to cause some offense. And Brethren, you, gotta, you see somebody in the church, they're not being honest all the time. Their dealings with people, they're not, they don't hold to their word. What are you going to do? Smile at that? Well, that's, that's just the way that brother is. Is that being a loving church? Abhor it! Hate it! Brethren, this is at the heart of the matter. This is what Paul's saying. Third, I make another assertion. Point out something else here. Look at the text. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Do you see those words? They're very plain to us. 
Boy, you can read them and you don't even think about... You know, sometimes we become used to the statements that are made in Scripture and they're just so simple and they're just so basic. But do you realize how that those two statements just change the entire way most Americans think? Look at, those, look at how each of those statements end. What is evil and what is good? Paul is asserting something that I'll tell you this would make most college professors angry. What is evil? What is good? Paul is actually asserting that there is actually objective evil. There is actually objective good. In other words, there are things that are good. There are things that are evil. Why? Not because I decide that. Not because the professor decides it. They're actually good and they're actually evil because they are actually good and evil. That's reality. There are absolutes. There are things that truly can be identified as evil and they are evil. They're not evil just because we say they're evil. They're evil because they are evil. That's, that's the assumption. Come, Folks, we got people running all over with this relativistic thinking today. Well, it's okay for me. It may not be okay for you, but I can decide that if I'm not hurting you by my beliefs. Brethren, Paul doesn't know anything about that. That's not even crossing his mind. We don't ultimately decide. It doesn't all ultimately depend on whose view is being considered. we got an ecumenical spirit today that basically believes you and I can be diametrically opposed and we can both be right. We can both be true. It can be okay for you and okay for me. Brethren, that just isn't so. That isn't right. Paul looks at this whole thing and says there are absolutes. It's not all up to us to decide the good from the bad. You know, the world goes around there, they're like, well, you know, we all, we all came from monkeys. We're just an accident of the primordial soup. We're just basically this star stuff. Basically, life is without meaning. The meaning of life is basically, you know, whatever each one of us try to ascribe to it. Paul says to that, you know what, that whole thing is just garbage. God does not say that if you... Ob- Listen, you see what's being said here? The standard's outside of ourselves. God isn't saying, well, if you abhor it, then it's evil. If you cling to it, then it's good. He says, no, before you ever even get there, there is a standard for good and for evil, and you're the one that's being called to conform. You're not being called on to conform the rules and the standards. You're being called upon to conform to whatever is already true. That's basically what he's saying there. The whole point here is that there is a standard for good. There is a standard for evil. It exists outside of ourselves. Determined long before we got there. We're not told to consider evil to be what we hate. That's the way a lot of people look at it. I hate that. It's bad. We're told there's an absolute for what is evil. We're called to conform it. Good and evil. Listen. The bottom line here is good and evil don't change. You are the one being called to change. You see that? We don't alter this thing, the standard's there. What Paul's saying to us is conform to the standard. And the standard is this. If you're a child of God, hate what is evil. Abhor it. Vehemently hate it. Loathe it. It is loathable. You conform and loathe it. 
You got things over here that are good. You don't determine them to be good. They are good. And get in line and cling to it. You're the one being called to change. He isn't saying anything about the standard being all relative and changing and amorphous thing and foggy and no reality. He's saying, no, there are firm foundations. You now line yourself up with it. What is firmly good, cling. What is firmly bad, abhor. Run from it. Hate it. One of the reasons men and women need to undergo a renewing of the mind. Isn't that how Paul started this whole section? Right in verse 2? We need to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. One of the reasons we need to have our minds transformed is because man by nature does not properly assess evil and good. Didn't, wasn't Isaiah that said, you call good evil and evil good. You see what he's saying? He doesn't say because you call the evil good that it makes it good. He says it's evil. And you calling it good doesn't change it. And what we need to have our minds transformed because men walk around all the time. There's a way that seems right to man. Man's walking around all the time thinking good is evil and evil is good. Men end up in hell because they think that. They say, well, my religion's good. Yeah, your religion doesn't square up with the Scriptures. That's bad. No, my religion's good. No, that's bad. You say it's good, but it's bad. See, people have, they basically have a mindset. How are you getting to heaven? Well, I've been a pretty good person. That's bad. No, that's good. I'm being a good person. That's good. No, the Bible says that's bad. The Bible says your best things are filthy rags. That's bad. Yeah, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying Muhammad out. That's bad. No, that's good. No, that isn't good. The Bible says there's one way to God and it's not by Muhammad. It's by Jesus Christ. You're on the wrong path. You see, there are objective evils and there are objective goods in God's Word. And they don't change. Listen, there is one God. There is one true and living God and He exists as three persons. Your opinions don't change that. You don't just simply waltz in here and say, well, I don't like that. I don't agree with that. I'm going to change it. You may not like it. You may not agree with it. But the fact is, you can't change it. That's true. That's right. That's real. Your opinion doesn't count. It does not change reality. We're told, you guys know it very well, in Acts 4, there is none other name given among men under heaven whereby we must be saved. And you know what? It doesn't matter if all one billion Hindus and all one billion Chinese and all one billion Muslims and 300 million Buddhists rise up and say otherwise. It doesn't change it. There is truth. There is error. There is right. There is wrong. That's what Paul is saying. There are standards, folks. But you say, where does that standard come from? Well, you know what? Right here in the context, Paul already told us. Look back up in verse 2. Back up in verse 2, we find the word good. Okay, what's good? It says in verse 2, what is good? You see that? And what is good? What is it that's acceptable? What is it that's perfect? Well, it's the will of God. What we are 
have renewed minds that we may discern and try and test what is the will of God. What is good? That is good. The will of God. You see, God determines by His will what is right, what is wrong, what is good, what is evil. You don't, I don't, He does. He determines what is good, what is right, what is proper, what is commendable, what is valuable. I know. Look, folks, this does not sit well with our American mindset. Really, with man's mindset. Man doesn't like that. Man wants to be right. Man wants to set the rules. Man wants to declare how to get to heaven. Man wants to declare who God should be. Man doesn't like to be told God isn't like you think He is. God is like the Bible says He is, not like you think He is. Men don't like to hear that they are utterly useless before God. Their righteousness are filthy rags. They can't get to heaven that way. They can't get there by being good, by feeling good, any other thing. Men don't like to hear that. And yet, these are, these are the unmovable truths by which we must love men. The Bible says things like this, I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Proverbs 30, verse 5, every word of God proves true. And here's the thing, God is the standard. You know what God says to us? Conform or perish. It's that simple. You ever hear verses like this? Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Guess what that is? There's a standard. Conform or perish. The Bible is like that all over the place. Here's truth. There is no other way to God. Deny it. Perish. There is evil. There is good. Bottom line. You know what? John the Baptist didn't come before Herod and say, well, you know, having your brother's wife is kind of right for you. Probably wrong for me, but, you know, I'm a prophet. That wouldn't look good here. That is probably all right for you. You know what? When there are absolutes, John the Baptist can come before Herod and say, it is wrong to have your brother's wife. It is not righteous. It is unlawful. It is wrong. It is evil. Why? Because there are absolutes. God declares what those absolutes are. And you know what? When we throw absolutes out, when we throw right and wrong out, when we become relativistic like this country is, when there are no absolute moral realities, guess where we end up? Guess where we end up? Who determines what's right and wrong when you throw out those absolutes? Who does? Little children? Who declares it? Who in this country right now is declaring what's right and wrong? Who? I'll tell you what happens. Those who are strongest. Those who wield the biggest stick. Isn't that right? Basically, what did you have back in the time of the judges? Everybody did what's right in their own eyes. The problem is... You can't just continue to do what's right in your own eyes when somebody stronger than you wants to do what's right in their own eyes and it conflicts with what's right in your own eyes. Right? And you see where I'm coming from? Fact is, you th I'll tell you this, America's throwing the absolutes out. We're making our bed. God's going to make us sleep in it. I'll tell you what, Nazis, Hitler, that type of thing doesn't spring up out of nowhere. They had to reject a whole lot of truth before they got to exterminating Jews the way they did. They had to throw a lot of absolutes out the window. 
We're killing how many millions of children in this country when God says, thou shall not kill. There is the standard. And we say, well, it's good. We're calling good evil. We're calling evil good. We say it's good that a woman have her rights. I'll tell you where this leads. It's leading in a way. When, it, when you get to the point where those that are strongest just decide, well, it's in the best interest. It's good to exterminate the Jews. You can get right there where it's good to exterminate the Christians too. You know what the truth is? Christians are salt and light. But you throw absolutes out the window, then it gets good to eliminate the salt and light. I tell you folks, we're moving somewhere. You don't throw truth away. You don't throw absolutes away. You don't throw absolute evil and good away. Paul assumes it. What is evil? What is good? They're there. They exist. Conform. And as Christians, get your head out of the fog of this world out here and begin to realize if prayer is good, then do it. If being in God's Word is good, do it. If fasting is good, do it. Lay hold on what is good. Away with this mindset. Well, brother, so-and-so, you know, they're, they're a prayer warrior. You know what? The reason they may be laying hold of prayer is because it's good. And it isn't relative. Oh, it's good for him, not for me. If it's good, and who declares it? The will of God. Where do you find the will of God? In the Word of God. That's where we've got to go for the standard, folks. Right there. Brethren, do you really see this? When it comes to love, how does this impact my love? Okay, I'm at the supermarket. You know, I'm just, I'm cruising down the aisle. I'm past somebody. Well, they seem like a nice person. Oh, really? Are they without Christ? You know what? There are some absolute truths here. If that person right there is not seeking to be accepted by God on the merits of Jesus Christ alone, they are perishing and they are going to hell. They say, well, they're a pretty nice person. I don't want to stir the You really want to love somebody? You're going to deal with absolutes. You're going to deal with truth. You're going to deal with what's true, with what's good. We can write it off. Oh, you got a family member. Yeah, you know, I got a nephew, I got a niece, I got a brother, I got a sister, I got a wife. They're a nice person. So, without Christ, they're perishing. I mean, you know, we can we get in this mindset. See it for what it is. Every single person in this world, out there and in here, without Christ, is dying in their sin. Everyone. It's not a pretty picture. If we're going to love, we got to love according to what is good. And there are things that are good, and there are things that are bad. There are things that are evil. Brethren, God sets this up. Way with the fog of this relativistic world. We need to see things as they really are. When you see what's really good, you lead men to it. When you see what's really bad, you do everything you can to pull men away from it. Fourth, this leads me to my fourth observation. This is just, I I know this is a little bit repetitive, but I kind of came at this from another way because I want you to think about it. I I, I want to pound this point home. Paul is pressing for what I would call principled love. What's that? What's that word? Principle. What do I mean by that? What is a principle? Not like the guy who oversees a school 
the other spelling. What is a principle? It's, it's like a rule, right? It's like a proposition. A proposition is a truth that I can lay before people. It's, it's, well, it's, it's a truth. It's a reality. A proposition. It's a statement I can make that has reality and truth to it. I can lay it. Our love needs to be like that. Our love is based on principles. Our love is based on propositions. In other words, let me give you an example. Love. It is a loving thing to lead somebody to Christ. That's true. That's a proposition. That's right. It's always right. We might say it's like a, it's like a theory, but it's always right. It's always true. It doesn't prove wrong. Our love needs to be principled like that. What do I mean by that? I mean, you got brother so-and-so. His marriage is bad. It's been bad. It's ongoingly bad. Well, that's just the way that brother is. No. Folks, principled love says, that is bad. I abhor it. And I'm going to do everything in my power to get my brother away from that. Because it's bad for him. It taints him. It keeps his fellowship with God from being what it could be. It's not right. Brethren, we can look at God's objective Word. And we can say with certainty there is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is bad. A principled love is when we interact and we relate to others in a way that is right. We walk, we function, we live among people and among our brethren with a moral rightness. We love in a way that is based upon principles of God's Word. That's the reality here. We don't love in ways that are merely convenient. Listen, a lot of our love, if we really think about it, is not principled love. It is not based on, okay, that's, that's good. That's evil. I'm going to love in light of that. You know what we do? There's a brother got a problem. It's kind of like, feel the wind. Uh, what are the consequences if I try to love? Ah, they're too costly. That's not principled love. That's hypocrite. If, if you just simply respond, not because of what's best for somebody, but because what's best for you, that's hypocritical. You can say you love them. You can act really nice towards them. But when you're concerned about the cost, when you're concerned about the circumstances, when you're concerned more about the consequences and what's convenient, when you love based on your own emotions, whether you feel like it or don't feel like it, it's unprincipled. Because it's not based... Look, if you say, I don't feel like it, your love isn't based on a principle. It's not based on truth. It's based on your emotion. Based on your feelings. That is not what Paul's telling us to do here. But so much of our love is like that. I don't feel like it. I don't feel good. I I don't feel like going... You know what? Like I said before, love is not always smooth. It's not always easy. We get in places where we're just like, you know what? It would really inconvenience me to love that person the way the Scriptures would have me to love them. Inconvenient. Because they're likely not to receive it well. They're likely to strike back. They're likely to do this and that and the other thing. I'm telling you what, folks. What Paul's saying here, you see sin in your brother. You see evil in the church. Regardless of consequence, loathe it. Hate it. That which is good, 
That which is good for you, that which is good for others, that which is truly helpful, that which is useful, that which is excellent, hold tight to it. No matter what my emotions say, this is a life lived in truth, grounded in truth. It grows out of deep convictions. That's a thing. So much of the love is based on emotions. It's based on consequence. What Paul's saying here is let your love swell up out of deep conviction and deep persuasion about what is right and what is wrong. And then when you see a brother or sister walking in wrong, walking in evil, you don't sit back, twiddle your thumbs, go home and sit on the sofa. You say, you know what? I'm going to love them. And if you have to say to them, get behind me, Satan, I'll show you the true lover of men. And it wasn't always pretty. And he told them the truth. And they didn't always like it. It didn't always make them feel, uncom- it didn't always make them feel comfortable. But I'll tell you what, those that were around Christ, as much as that, I'm sure... They felt uncomfortable a lot. They never knew what to expect from this guy. But I'll tell you, they knew he loved them. I don't think that, I don't think they ever doubted that at all. We need a church like that. Principled love. Not just where you guys are trying to do what feels good, feels right. I mean, brethren, one of the things I want to see happen in this church, I want to see missionaries go for. What in the world are you going to do? You go over to a Muslim country. You know what reality is? They're on a way leading to their death. You know what you're going to have to do? You're going to have to tell them their way's wrong. Your way's right. You know what they're likely to do? You tell them that? They're not, not likely to like it. But if you're going to truly love men, this is what it is. It's a principled love. And just ask yourself that. Are you seeing sin? Are you seeing that which is corrupting? Are you seeing that which is evil in your brothers and sisters and you have an unwillingness? Are there times you walk away and you say, I should have rebuked him. I should have exhorted him. I should have pointed that out. I should have brought that to light. But, you know, I don't want to be the problem maker. Let Brother Tim do that. That happens. I see that happen. There's a problem over there. You deal with it? You talk to him? No, I didn't do it. Why? I mean, if the truth is laid out, it's because you're being an unhypocrite or you're being a hypocritical lover. That's really at the bottom of it. I mean, you know, that's not the prettiest way to put it, but that's the reality of it. Okay, fifth. Only got two more, guys. Here we go. I asked myself this. I thought about these verbs, participle, abhorring, holding fast. I got to thinking about it, well, okay, I'm supposed to preach this. What if somebody's sitting out there and I say, abhor what is evil? And they don't abhor what is evil. They actually love what is evil. What if I tell, what if I'm up here saying, abhor what is evil, and you're out there and you watch pornography on the internet all the time and you love it, you like it? Am I supposed to assume? That Paul's words on that written page in all of our Bibles is going to make the difference? Am I to assume that if you're out there and you love evil, that me saying abhor it is going to change you from being a lover of it to an abhorrer of it? You see, brethren, this goes back up to verse 2. It says that there needs to be transformation. Let me tell you something. You will never abhor evil just because I tell you to do it. Or even because Paul just tells you to do it. 
You've got to hear a voice beyond ours. There's got to be transformation. You've got to be radically recreated. You've got to become a new creation in Christ. You've got to have your heart altered. You've got to have the Spirit put within you. You've got to have those desires radically changed. Let me tell you something. Only true Christians can do this. Me saying it isn't going to make you out there who love evil all of a sudden abhor it. Because you are, by nature, a lover of evil. That's what a sinner is. They love evil. They hate God. They love evil. They love the God of their own imagination. They hate the God of the Bible. And they hate His laws. And they hate His truth. And they hate His people. They hate His Christ. They hate His way of salvation. Now, they don't admit it, but that's a reality. If you find yourself out there and you're a lover of unrighteousness, you're a lover of what is evil, look, I can tell you this. As, as you go to Scripture, you can find that transformation basically happens one way. Men crucify these desires and these passions for what is of the flesh, what is evil, one way. You know what Acts 15.9 says? Listen to this. It says, the hearts of men are purified or they're made clean only one way, by faith in Jesus Christ. You have no other hope. You know what You know what it says? There's a crippled guy. What was that? Like Acts 4 maybe? The guy that sat at the beautiful gate? Is that where that is? Anyways, here's this guy. It says, by his name, by faith in his name. What was that? Peter preaching? This man is made whole. Well, you know what? Whether it's a crippled man walking or a person that's spiritually crippled, all of a sudden loving what is... It's on the same plane, folks. The same power that makes a crippled man walk is the same power that makes a blind man see. And it's the same power that makes a lover of evil all of a sudden hate evil. It's the same plane. By His name, by faith in His name. That's where it's at. That's, you know... We just we are not in a place to make people into this. I can tell you the truth. I can tell you that this is what it says. If you are a saved person, the Spirit of God is in you, I trust you're going to respond to this. And if you don't have that Spirit, look, the only way you can come to that place to have your heart purified and cleansed is by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. There is no other way. Now, you say, what a, but I'm a Christian. I do abhor you. But I'm not where I want to be. I don't have the intensity that I really want to have. You know what? I'm going to bring you right back to the verse. I have no other verse that plainly, I believe, brings this out. You know what you're saying if your intensity isn't what it ought to be? You're saying that you're falling short of being like Christ. Because Christ's intensity was perfect towards love, or, or excuse me, towards that which was evil and that which was good. Christ rightly associated and dealt with everything. He rightly assized what was good. He rightly calculated what was evil. He knew exactly. And He dealt with those things. He clung to them or He abhorred them in due proportion all the time. He did it perfect. He's the standard. And I come back to this. Transformation, 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, takes place this way. By the Spirit of God as we gaze on Jesus Christ. I'll tell you this. If you're a Christian here and you're just saying, my love isn't what it ought to be, 
I'm not abhorring the evil the way I ought to. I'm not clinging to the good the way I ought to. What you need is further transformation. What does that transformation look like? From one degree of glory to another. That's what's happening. What you are telling me is you need to be bumped up a notch in that glory. You need to be more conformed to the image of Christ. It's a process. The Spirit of God does it. And how does the Spirit of God do it? As you gaze upon the living Christ. As you gaze upon the Savior. As you gaze at Him. That You know what you need to abhor what you don't abhor? To abhor it more? To abhor it better? To abhor it more lowlingly? To cling to and love the good more than you do? You need an increased level of this glory. And what is that? That is nothing less than the Spirit of God infusing power into your life to do it. You need the power of God. The power of God is unleashed in men's lives as they gaze on Christ. Where can Christ be seen? In the Word of God. You go there. You gaze on Christ. You look at Christ. Look at what He loathed. Look at what He loved. Look at what He clung to. Look at what He despised. Let that flow to you from the Scriptures. And what we find there is that glory will begin to shine off of you. A work that the Spirit of God does. That brings me to my last one. And with this, we are done. Sixth, final observation. I just asked the question this. What is evil and what is good? We said we're supposed to abhor the one, cling to the other. We said that God is the one by His will, which basically declares what the good is. Obviously, if He's declaring the good, He's also singling out what is bad, what is evil. We see that if we want more of it, we need to be like Christ. If we don't have any of it, we need to be saved. We're saved by faith in Christ. If you're already a Christian, the key, if you want to grow in these things, is gaze on Christ. If you're lost and you want to have them at all, gaze on Christ in faith. If you're a Christian, gaze on Christ in faith. It always comes back to Christ. That's always the issue. But what is the good that I should cling to? Now, there could be a lot of things. I mean, you know, we could go to the broadest sense and say, well, God created everything and He looked at it and He said it was good. I want to give you some things that are very particularly, especially in the New Testament, identified as good. And I want to tell you about what is evil. What is evil? There's only one thing that's evil. We don't have to get real complex. It may show up in a billion different ways, but there's only one thing that's evil. What is that? Sin. That's it. Sin is the only thing. You might think Sins are small. We, we tend to have that idea. We diminish them. We write them off. You remember this. Your sin, the sin of others, it is no less filthy. It is no less vile. It is no less abominable. Just because in your eyes, it seems to be some small thing. I mean, you picture, picture Jesus Christ. Can you picture Him with the spit running down His face? Do you know they spit in His face? I was just imagining the different things that ran down Christ's face. Spit ran down him. In the garden, blood like sweat ran down him. 
Can you imagine him there? I heard somebody say the other day something about some land being God forsaken. I really thought about that. God forsaken. I thought, you know, what is true? No matter how parched a desert might be, it's not God forsaken. But do you know what God forsaken is? A sinner in hell is God forsaken. Christ on the cross is God forsaken. You think sins are small? Is those sins you look at and you think, well, this is a small thing. You see Christ on that cross, God forsaken figure hanging there. You st- Before you start thinking of any sin as small, All sin is evil. Brethren, we are to abhor it. We are to loathe it. But what's good? What's good? I started looking through Scripture and I saw, you know, I just just typed in good and did did a quick overview of the entire New Testament. Well, we see back up in verse 2, the will of God is good, right? The will of God is good. We find in Hebrews 6, 5 speaks of the good Word of God. Well, that makes sense, right? The Word of God is good because the will of God is good. And what is the Word of God but an expression of the will of God? That is all good. Reading it, knowing it, knowing the God of it, obeying it, all that is good. The Gospel is called what? Good news. So cling to that. What is good we're to cling to? Well, what's the good news? The good news is this. The good news is God justifies the ungodly. Maybe you don't know what the word justify means, so I'll put it in a little simpler terms. You know what the good news is? The good news is bad people can be declared righteous in God's sight, not because of a single thing they do. Not because of what they do at all. They can be wicked, they can be wretched, and they are. Men are. And a wicked, wretched, miserable, pathetic sinner can come to God and without bringing any of his own good works, any of his own good emotions, any of his own good doings, any of his own good thoughts, he can be accepted in the sight of God by trusting that Christ lived the perfect life in His place and died and paid the penalty. That, folks, is good. We are to cling to that message and don't let it go. Though this world buck and it hiss and it hate, don't let that message go. Though the airs come through, though the devil will try to move us away from it, that gospel is good and there is no other good news. You start telling people they got to be good people, that's not good news. You tell people the church saves them, that's not good news. You tell people they got to be baptized, that's not good news. You tell people do such and such and keep this list of rules, that's not good news. Good news is pathetic. Useless, sinner, depraved, can look to Christ and find full salvation in Him alone. That is good news. Brethren, 
Prayer in 1 Timothy chapter 2. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. What? Supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgiving may be, be made for all people. There's good conscience. There's a good fight. There's good works. 1 Thessalonians 5.21. Test everything. Hold fast to what is good. We need to test it. We test. That's exactly what Romans 12.2 says. We test the will of God. What is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect. These are the things we lay hold on. That's exactly what Paul's saying to the Thessalonians. Brethren, these are objective realities. The things I just mentioned to you are objectively good. That doesn't change. They are good. They absolutely are. To cling to them will do you good. It will be for your good. It is the way to loving unhypocritically and doing other people good. As I thought about this, I just thought, to the true Christian here, our hearts long after another good still. Is there not a good, a chief good among all goods that we've got to bring in here at the end? That we have to, if you remember what hold fast to, Paul uses that with regards to sexual union. Is there not one we need to cling to? Is there not a good that we need to intimately embrace and be cemented to? Folks, there is one known as the Good Shepherd. Jesus, you know, we're just, we're going to go out of here, and I want this on your mind. If there's ever something to cling to, Jesus Christ is the greatest good in the universe. He is an absolute, objective good, and He is good for us. Whether you think so or not doesn't change the reality. He is the good shepherd. He's the best thing, the best person, the best beauty, the best truth, the best reality that there is. He is incarnate good. He is good personified. He came to do good, to show good, to be good, to do the best imaginable good for men. The good shepherd, he says, lays down his life for the lost sheep. He rescues men from their sin. You who are lost, some of you, you may know you're lost. You may know you can't identify with this. Hear me. Let me tell you this. We have some true Christians in here. I hope the majority. Can I tell you one thing? None of us have ever debated or doubted. You won't find us debating here whether Christ is good. He is good. When we came to Him, we found Him to be good. We found that all He has ever given us is good. He ravishes men with good. He alone is the path of good. If you don't have Him, you don't have good. Without Him, you forfeit good. Cling there. Brethren, He came to earth. He fought for us. He died for us. 
He went through that whole sea of blood for us. He's, he's the greatest good, the best good. Brethren, haven't we found it to be so? Look, if you haven't found it to be so, you are definitely free to go try another religion. But nobody who's tasted of the Lord has found it to ever be otherwise. Nobody has ever tried Christ and said, that's bad. I don't like that. That is not good for me. I'm out of here. Oh, people go out and they never come back. But it's because they were trying to use religion to accomplish some other means. They were trying... They had some ideas about getting to heaven some other way. They had some ideas about another God or another Savior. Nobody tries Christ and finds Him bad. Nobody tries Him and says, this is evil, this is no good. We're out of here. Brethren, you know, I can testify to this and I think all of you can too. We have found Him to be good beyond our wildest imagination. And we haven't even spanned the depths yet of what that is. We praise God for His inexpressible gift because that gift is just solid, pristine, good. Brethren, abhor what is evil. Loathe it. And grasp so tightly with all your might what is good. And especially grasp and lay hold of what is the chief good. You want to be true lovers of men? You want to be unhypocritical lovers? I didn't make this up. This is what Paul tells us. Participles, brethren. Participles. This is how to love. Hold good, abhor bad. That's how you love. Those of you that cling tightest and closest to Christ, you will be the best lovers of men. No matter what persecution may come, no matter what trials, no matter how all the other ground seems to be sinking sand and it falls away, no matter how many lions roar at you, you cling fast to Him and you'll know good. That good shepherd, the psalmist says, the Lord is my shepherd. And He says, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. You want good? I'm not saying do you want ease. I'm not saying do you want it to be a bed of roses. I'm not saying do you want a life without persecution and trial and tribulation. But I'm saying do you want good? There is objective good. And that most objective good and the greatest reality of good is found in Jesus Christ. And if you die without Him, you will find it to be bad. Forevermore bad. This is objective. This is real. This is right. This is true. There is good. There is bad. Brethren, let our love be absolute. Let it be principled. Let it be real. Let it be unhypocritical. Lord's Supper.
3 p.m.